Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. This is going to be a fun one today. We got Dan Pickering on the line and truth be told, other than the 37 minutes of technology challenges that I created for us getting into this meeting, I don't really know Dan other than his unbelievable Twitter persona. I like to refer to him as the godfather of EFT. And what Dan, does EFT stand for? Energy Fintwit, I believe. We've talked about it a few times. Yeah, it's been on the on the show a couple of times, but figured we'd introduce it to those who have heard, hadn't heard of it yet. <laughs> Same place we ran into Chuck Yates. The, the difference, I think, between Chuck and Dan is that I don't see... Uh, Dan, you know, creating a lot of like, you know, Lady Gaga type videos, but imposing his own face on it. I think it's maybe a different type of approach. So, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? I mean, I know Tudor Pickering and Holt. I'll never forget the big sign and sponsorship the first time I went to NAEP 12, 13 years ago. What do you do, man? What's your background? Where are you from? And, and what are you up to today? Thanks, guys. I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be with you. And uh, what I'll say is, if you call me the godfather of Twitter, it's just because I'm the oldest guy on there. <laughs> um, so just a quick snapshot on me. I'm a, I'm a Missouri boy, uh, born and raised, went to University of Missouri at Rolla and got a petroleum engineering degree, spent some time in industry, uh, had, a, had a summer out in the boonies of Oklahoma, uh, spent some time in Alaska and decided that by the time I was 40, I was going to get fired. That was sort of the time period in in the late 80s, early 90s, where there were a lot of layoffs. So I said, I'm going back to business school. Did that, got in the financial side of the oil and gas business uh, as a an analyst at Fidelity Investments. Did that for a few years, ran a sector fund around energy for them. Came down to Houston, uh, worked on the sell side then with Simmons and Company for a number of years and stepped out to start my own thing called Pickering Energy. We have to call it Pickering Energy 1.0 uh, now because we're Pickering Energy 2.0 as of last September. But uh, along a good run with my colleagues, Bobby Tudor and Maynard Holt uh, at uh, Tudor Pickering Holt. And uh, moved from being sell-side research to the buy-side and, and running money again back in 2010. So today, having spun off from TPH, still great friends with those guys, but uh, our firm runs about $700 million, mostly private equity money, all focused nice. on energy. And I'm our chief investment officer and spend time looking at both public companies and private companies trying to make a buck in the oil patch. So I want to I want to dig into a little bit of that history. So I've I was looking at your LinkedIn and I saw what your Rala class of eighty eight or something like that. Is that right? That's right. Petroleum engineer. That was being petroleum. And I'm class ninety two from A and M. So back at that time, if I recall, there's you know what four or five petroleum engineering colleges or universities that offer it in the whole country, and my class was about twenty people. I mean, I, what was what was it like in that time to be in petroleum engineering when it wasn't cool? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I started in '84. In, in as man, a that was cool, graduated, graduated '88. Um, so you know, we caught the we caught the the very bottom of that cycle, and 
So we started with something like 40 people in my class and, and finished with 12. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing was it was companies were still hiring, not a lot, but they were hiring in, in 88. And uh, but the but the business stayed pretty sloppy for a number of years. Like I said, you know, by 1992, I was convinced I was going to get fired. I'd been through and seen two layoffs at Arcos. So um, it was a it was great because the teacher student ratio wasn't particularly high um, and or, or the student teacher ratio was very low, I guess. And so we, we learned a lot, but it was a pretty slow time in the business. Man, so I was coming in as you were coming out. And so when you were making the decision to leave because you thought you were going to get fired, I, that was my first year out. So that's, you're, you're scaring me a little bit. But your, <laughs> your, your first stop was Alaska, if I'm looking at everything right. Yep. So what's it like? I mean, you're fresh out of school and you've got to go to Alaska. I mean, that had to be a fantastic first, uh, first run. Very, very interesting experience, um, both personally and professionally. So you go up and you're working on the biggest oil fields in North America. That was that was pretty fun. Um, you know, it's a it is a remote place. You know, Anchorage, Alaska is 250,000 people and it's not it's not igloos, but you are far away from everything. And so uh, my best friends to this day are are folks that I worked with in Alaska because when you're when you're a year one engineer and have no vacation, uh, Christmas rolls around and all your you know you're hanging out with the people that that you work with there and and so you know we had a 20 or so uh, year one engineers when I was up there and we we had a blast. It was fascinating time. Didn't love living in Alaska, but really enjoyed the experience. So. Tim wants to ask more questions. I can see him, but it's my turn. So go ahead. I've been, I've been quiet for long enough. So I want to go back before that. I want to go back to Missouri, right? Uh, did you grow up as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, a Kansas city chiefs fan? Where, where are your allegiances and like, where in the state are you from? Yeah. So I grew up in sort of South central Missouri, St. Louis Cardinals fan all the way. Um, loved baseball as a kid uh, grew up in a town of 2000 people. So we didn't have football. I didn't know anything about football. So it was neither a, uh, 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 Casey or St. Louis football fan, uh, but loved the Cardinals. So, so to tie it back, my, my grandfather, the Funk family, and I haven't, I haven't told this whole story. The Funk family came through Ellis Island in, I don't know the exact year. It must've been around 1912. And my grandfather was too young. I mean, he was just a young guy. He didn't know. But anyway, so, so they show up at Ellis Island and they say, what, what's your last name? And they said, Funk. <laughs> it's like, your last name will now be Funk. Long story short, they lived in Brooklyn for a little bit and then moved to St. Louis. So in some of his formidable years, late 20s, early 30s, Stan Musial, Stan the man, uh, was his favorite player. And I am such a diabolical Red Sox fan that when we finally, when you guys rolled the red carpet out for us in the 2004 sweep, I gave my 85-year-old grandfather a lot of shit. That's just how diabolical I am. But anyways, we don't need to talk baseball. This is an oil and gas podcast. So tell me a little bit about getting into investing after you were in Alaska. Yeah, um, 
always been interested in the stock market. Uh, love the concept uh, of investing, which basically, particularly in the public markets, um, every single day you get a scorecard. Did the stock you own go up? Did the stock you're short go down? And so um, after my first summer in the oil patch working for Phillips uh, Petroleum, I actually bought some Phillips stock and uh, just loved kind of watching it and paying attention to it. My grandfather gave me some Ford Motor stock when I was a kid. And so, you know, again, what does that mean? Uh, you know, helps help me learn about the market. And I just was always intrigued by it. So when when I left to go back to business school, the the thought that I could be an investor as a as a second career was just really exciting. And so um, it was a, a great move and a great career transition for me because I, I love what I do. Okay, so, and you know, you've you went in through what Fidelity, and you kind of moved through there, and you you wound up eventually at Tudor Pickering Holt, which you know, with I don't know, I'm a pretty naive when it comes to the financial side of the business, but my understanding was an investment investment banking firm, and of course has their fingers into a lot of things, and now you spun off well exactly a year ago now uh, to the Pickering Two. What's the What's the difference? Why spin off? What What are you doing differently between the two companies that uh, this time around? Yeah, great, great question. So we started Pickering Energy, which became TPH. We started it as a sell side research firm. So we were we were researching public companies and providing those those opinions and viewpoints to institutional investors. And um, I got together with Bobby and Maynard to do the investment banking part of the business and start the asset management business, you know, because we had, you know, we, we all had similar views on what was going on in the oil patch and the view of um, taking research content and being smart in energy and finding ways to, you know, help clients. So Bobby and Maynard were doing deals. Uh, I was writing research and, and we launched an asset management business on the view that if you can, you can figure out what stocks are going up and down and 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 you can figure out how to do deals for clients shouldn't you be able to do that um as a principle so you know that was the concept around tph and it's been you know a great ride it's a real business that uh you know has fabulous market share in both the banking business and with institutional investors on the research side the the asset management business um, was something that we grew, you know, dramatically. It got to be about a two billion or so assets under management uh, during our tenure, and uh, along the way, we we had done a combination with a New York firm called Perella Weinberg, and they had an asset management business as well. So we sort of rolled our asset management business under theirs, and um, you know, ultimately, Perella Weinberg decided to get out of the asset management business, and so. We that that created the spin out. So TPH continues to do research and investment banking. Uh, we continue to do asset management. We've just separated the businesses because of the the decision at the Perella Weinberg level. And um, we're still great friends, still office in the TPH building and talk to those guys all the time. So it's a it's still a very good collaborative relationship. We're just now a separate entity. So now with your you're taking on the asset management, are you actively looking for investments with invest with the with uh, 
oil companies? Or are you just taking positions? Or are you just advising them? No, so we're we're investing on behalf of our clients into these companies. So on the public side of the the, the ledger, we're buying you know stocks. We're buying Diamondback Energy and Schlumberger and Exxon and and Plains All American. So we're investing in those public companies. And then on the private side, uh, we're you know we're we're putting money. Uh, most of our capital is in club deals with other private equity firms. We've also got a. Uh, a fund that invests in uh, Permian producing properties for a kind of a yield oriented strategy. So in those we're, we're putting money in private companies and hoping to grow them and, and sell them down the road. Yeah, that's, this has been one that I've really, really been excited about because we've been in a down market now for a while. This year has been just a, a massive black lotus. I've heard some people say we've had a decrease in energy demand. We had the whole uh, Saudi, Russia, OPEC thing happening with too much production. It's been a crazy, crazy year. How do you navigate that? I mean, certainly you've got the experience. You you probably look at where the best uh, production and assets may be, but, but how have you navigated this uh, absurd 2020? Yeah, I'd love to tell you that we saw we saw the first part of the year coming and got out of the way. That would that would be an exaggeration. So, you know, the answer is I don't think there was much of a way to 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 avoid getting hit over the head with a sledgehammer at the beginning of the year. Um, the, the reality is the market changed so quickly in with the combination of the OPEC market share battle and then COVID that. Really, the only thing you could do was help your portfolio companies get through the low price period um, and, and look for opportunities to deploy new capital as, you know, sort of the fallout created created opportunities. And so, you know, we've spent a lot of time sifting through what I would say is, you know, the, the, the challenge that hit the industry really, you know, hurt a lot of businesses. And we're trying to find the ones where, you know, we can put some capital in at good valuations and, you know, find the winners in both the private and public side. So the answer is you roll up your sleeves. It was sort of happened so fast that, you know, it takes your breath away, but what are you going to do? You, you wake up the next day and say, okay, how can we go out and make money for our clients now? And so, uh, you know, adjusting to the new reality, which is, you know, $40 oil is not great and companies are under stress or distress and you, you just try and find the best, you know, the best opportunities you can. So, long way of saying you take a deep breath and, you know, go in and do your best. So in December, when you were sitting with uh, Colin and Jake on the uh, startups podcast, you were, you had talked about, this is December, 2019. Mm -hmm. You were talking about capital starvation, creating opportunities, you know, and just, well, three months later, you know, all of this happened. So, Talking to your December self when you were making those statements, what's different now than what was going on in December as far as starvation creating these opportunities? Is it different? Is it vastly different? Or are you still looking for the same types of things? Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm talking to my December self, I'm saying, wait, 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 or hold <laughs> your cash, be patient. It's going to get better. And that's actually sort of what I'm saying now as well. The, the, sector is sort of digesting lower oil prices and too much debt and not enough capital. That capital starvation is worse now, which, 
you know, in my opinion, has created an even better potential opportunity. I say potential because, again, the sector's still kind of trying to find equilibrium, but um, we went from an interesting and good opportunity to probably a generational opportunity. You know, this is this is 1986 again. I was in Midland in 1986, and it was a disaster. And it's we're we're kind of on the brink of that disaster again, if you will, from a valuation perspective. Oil's 40, um, not a great price, better than the 20s and 30s we were at. But the answer is, you know. We were we were looking for deals then and optimistic we were going to find them. Same story today. I think the values are better. If I was going to if I was going to buy something for seventy cents on the dollar in December, you know, I'm thinking forty cents on the dollar now. So the the opportunity is better. Uh, it's just kind of painful way to get here. Yeah, no, I I understand that. And you know, Tim and I are both on the energy tech side, and my personal take on this is. You know, we've talked about this a few times on on this podcast and, and really in every conversation I have, the energy tech side is exploding right now. Maybe not for every single company, but you just simply can't be an oil and gas operator. Get rid of 30, 40, 50% of your staff and do business the same way. So what do you do? You You keep the people that you can keep. And you help them optimize the business, everything from what you do in the field and into the back office, which to me has created almost a general, uh, sorry, a uh, massive opportunity for people that are in the energy tech side of things. Do you deal with energy tech at all or are you focused more on the operations and the producers? No, we, we certainly look at it. We're from an investing perspective, we don't classify ourselves as sort of venture investors. So we're looking at companies that have you know, generated revenue that are that are sort of proven with with operators. And so we definitely think that, you know, the interesting thing about energy tech right now is switching costs or, or risks have gone way down. If a well cost 10 million two years ago, it's pretty tough. And, and you know, oil price is higher. It's it's tough to to justify doing new things when you know, a well costs four million dollars, and you know the production is getting priced at forty. You know, you have to be a little bit more willing to take you know some of those energy tech uh, risks. So we do invest in it. Um, we don't have any investments right now in new technologies, but you know it's an area that continues to sort of interest us, just because you know the, the industry is going to have to continue to adapt. So speaking of adaption, so I guess I want to say it was about 10 years ago, we were talking about or people were talking about uh, peak production. And of course, $100 oil in 2008, uh, you know, destroyed the idea of peak production. There's more oil as it gets higher, as the prices go up. And just, you know, I guess it was last week, BP kind of came out with their revised peak demand uh, forecast, and it was a lot sooner than kind of anyone else has been predicting. So, you know, based on all that, what is, what's your long-term look for peak demand, peak oil, or, you know, how long, how does that, and how does that shape your investment? Yeah. So bear with me as I jump up on a soapbox for a while. Here we Uh, go. Here he goes. Here he goes. Yeah. The, the reality is that, I mean, we consume 
100 million barrels a day of oil and, you know, a significant quantity of gas. And you just simply cannot wean the world off of that as quickly as many people expect or hope. So the expectations that, you know, we're going to stop using oil anytime soon, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous. There's too many people driving around in cars. There's too many people using, you know, oil and, and gas products and chemicals and plastics and whatnot. So, um, so I am a believer that demand, assuming world economies kind of continue to grow one, two, three percent a year, and that could be a big assumption in the near term. But um, you know, I think oil demand peaks at one ten to one fifteen sometime, uh, fifteen to twenty years from now. And uh, but at the same time, the quote unquote energy transition is very real. Um, if you look at it, the combination of in today's world, uh, you have a triangle of Greta Thunberg representing all of the people who think hydrocarbons <laughs> are bad and the climate has to change. You've got BlackRock telling you that they're going to look at ESG issues and, and uh, for every investment that they make, they're the world's largest investment manager. And then you've got all of the major oil companies making some sort of push toward carbon neutrality. So, you know, those three things say the energy transition is real. And so the industry is going to have to do something about it. And, you know, wind, solar, renewables, electric vehicles, et cetera, you know, it's the real deal. It's going to grow fast from a very small base. And so, you know, I don't think it's either or it's going to be both and it's going to be both for a long period of time. Um, All of the all of the energy transition stuff, whether it's energy technology or Tesla or whatever is very cool and sexy and the valuations are high and that rapid growth has got people, you know, super psyched about it. Uh, and the flip side is energy's lost people money for, you know, hydrocarbons have lost people money for the last decade. So there's a huge dichotomy in how people think about these things, but we're going to need them both for a very long time. So no, stepping no. down off my soapbox now. No, I'm going to get on mine. So it's perfect. Well, one of the things that that I enjoy about the whole energy fintwit is, first of all, these guys are smarter than me. Second of all, I don't know who these guys are really, besides maybe you, Chuck Yates and, and Colin. But truth be told, I think I'm long Tesla. And the reason that I'm long Tesla, not to get too deep into portfolios. Well, I mean, first of all, my financial advisor bought 15 shares for me at $300. And that was really cool. So <laughs> I'm with it. But to me, I don't think people invest in a company like Tesla because they're bullish on uh, electric vehicles or renewables. I think that people are excited about the tech. Right. And, and that's where I think a company like that is interesting. If you were to look at the, the true value of a company like Ford, you know, the, the numbers add up and they look like a better investment, but the market's just not at all rational right now. Neither is Elon Musk. And to me, it's like, you know, I guess I'm in it for the crazy ride. Uh, what would you say to people that, that are trying to short some of these stocks that have all that hype and maybe not the finances to back it up? Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the old adage of the market can be irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I think certainly is at play here. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand uh, the valuation, but what I will also say is that the best analogy I have for Tesla right now is go back and look at Amazon. 
Amazon traded at a stupid valuation for decade or a decade probably. It was a bookseller online. And mm-hmm. today Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world after his divorce. And um and it's because he was on to a trend that was huge. And that's the only answer for the valuation of a Tesla or some of these EV companies is that the market is telling you in lots of different ways that uh, this is the future and people, you know, want to slice the future. So, you know, I, I don't know that Tesla is fairly valued. It may be too cheap or too expensive. I don't follow the company closely enough to have an opinion, but the market's telling you this is the real thing that will last for a while. You know, that, that it's, it's the secular growth story. Secular and sexy. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> I was going to say, so you, you said something that may, maybe triggered me a little bit, but the market is pretty good at predicting the long-term trends. And clearly the long-term trend and very long-term trend is going to be this energy transition. But I want to, you said something in the, in the same podcast with uh, uh, the startup podcast in December talking about the, I think Jake asked you, did Wall Street cause the shale bubble? Or, and you, you kind of said, well, yes, it did. And I was thinking back to the markets in the short term can get really far ahead of themselves, like the dot-com bubble, and I guess what we'll call the shale bubble at the same time. Do, they, do those equate to you? And maybe in short term, the, this Tesla conversation, is that the, are they the same type of thing? The, the valuations just get out there too far and they need to be corrected, but it is the real trend. 100%. I think that that what you saw in the shale boom was you saw a market that said, holy cow, this is, you know, this is the ability of the U.S. oil and gas business to grow again. And it was absolutely right. right? We went from 5 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. Now, what happened was those stocks got ahead of themselves too. And those companies, you know, burned up a lot of capital. And so the market told you for sure that shale was going to be something real and significant. That's what's happening in this EV space and the kind of energy transition space is the market's telling you it's going to be meaningful. Whether or not these companies are worth what they're trading for today, uh, to be determined, but it's very possible that some of them uh, are overhyped because people are so excited about the story that they're not thinking about you know, valuation and long-term value. So it's telling you the trend. It may not be accurately pricing individual stocks. Yeah, growth over profit. Possible. Possible. So normally I, I report this, record this podcast from my home office. It's a lot easier. Today I had a lunch at La Loma. Shout out La Loma, best uh, green chili in the state of Colorado. I don't know if either of you have ever, have ever been there, but if you come to Colorado, I'm taking you. Um, and, and I'm sitting right outside of the building that Whiting Oil and Gas is in. And that's a fascinating story to me because Whiting Oil and Gas has always been just an amazing Denver staple, right? I mean, I think back to that six-ish billion dollar acquisition of Kodiak, where I knew some people personally that did extremely well. The timing was probably bad to buy it at you know, uh, 90 bucks a barrel uh, and the highest point of Kodiak shares, but but it is what it is. So now, Whiting was early. They decided to go chapter 11 and come out and basically brought in a lot of the people from the old Kodiak team, but they've wiped out a lot of their debt. To me, they seem uniquely positioned. 
can they get past that sort of black eye in this city where, oh, those guys were great, but they got rid of everybody. And, you know, now they're a valuable stock again. How, how do you view that from sort of the, the personal feel that people have? Like, like it would be hard for me personally to invest in a company like Whiting because of everything I've seen from a personal basis. How, how do you get past people's own individual biases when it comes to investing? It's a great it's a great question. So, you know, the bankruptcy process basically creates a new company. And um, and at times it creates uh, a new company with new management. Uh, at times it creates a, a new company with a different balance sheet and old management. Um, this is dangerous territory for me. But but generally the way I think about it is um, companies that. Uh, retain the same management that go through a bankruptcy process, have a big hole to climb out of because they took me down as an investor originally. Doesn't matter why too much debt, bad luck, whatever. Um, At the end of the day, my investment went to zero or close to it as an equity guy. So I I'm much more interested generally in companies that um, as they come out of bankruptcy, they're changing something, not just their balance sheet, but in this case, whiting, right new new management uh running the business and so i'm more likely to take a look at whiting than i am some of the other uh, bankrupt companies that are restructured and it's the same teams you know it's just a, a different balance sheet yeah i i like that take i mean not to mention uh, strategically they took some of the old Kodiak guys who sold them their assets. These guys are so intimately familiar. They already know the names of each wells. They probably know how to optimize some of their lease operators routes. And now that they're, they're not saddled with extreme debt, they probably have the opportunity to survive at $36, $37 oil wherever we're at today. So I, I can get behind that. What I don't understand though, is when you emerge with the same people, and you're talking, you know, millions of dollars of bonuses. And then there's all of us here like, wait a second, you took that company down. You made money on the way down. Now you're coming out making money on the way up. Fundamentally, it seems a little off to me. But again, I'm not going to put you on the hot spot and make you address that. It's good to be the king, Jeremy. It's good to be the king. Well, that's why we got Dan on, right? So, so Dan, you, you live in Houston. Is that home for you? Houston is home. That's right. So... One of the things I love to talk about on here is is food and and travel to an extent. What are what are some of your favorite cities to go to when you have a chance to be on the road? Yeah, um, I love California. Great vibe in California. Um, spent a lot of time sort of in Northern California. Carmel is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I'm. I also you know. I love Africa. If you've never been to Africa, put it on the bucket list. Um, safari is an experience that uh, everybody ought to do at least one time. You know, Where'd you go? South see Africa? All that, see all that nature uh, on an unscripted basis. So I love Africa, basically anywhere in Africa, out in the bush. Love Carmel, California. Big fan of Park City, although I'm not a very good skier. Um, interestingly, you know, the, the places that that I like to go a little bit more moderate weather than, than we get in Houston. So I love Houston as a place to live. It's unbelievable people and a great city and so welcoming and entrepreneurial and business friendly. Um, I, I just wish it had the weather of, of, uh, you know, anywhere else. 
Colorado, almost, almost anywhere else. <laughs> nah, I, I, we we call it the the Denver tax up here, right? Like we we probably sacrifice some money. We definitely sacrifice the restaurants, even business relationships. But truth be told, we get the weather up here, and I, I think people are willing to to make that sacrifice. So with with Tudor Pickering and Holt, right? We we hear this a lot from from Colin, and I know he's he hangs out with Maynard Holt and say, yeah, this this is really amazing. Um, you said you guys still keep in touch, but still sort of operate independently. Do you view your former partners as competitors, or is this just still a complete alliance between the three of you? Yeah, gr- great question. So we're we're in different businesses, so we're definitely collaborators, not competitors. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I I think these guys are smart and in touch with what's going on in the market. And so, you know, we, we love talking to them for their, their views on what's going on in in the marketplace. I am a client of Tudor Pickering's research business. So, you know, I think they've got a great take on what's happening in the public space. And so, uh, not not competitors, collaborators on things, and uh, you know that's it's it's been a good relationship for us for the last decade, and will continue to be for the next decade. I hope. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I've got, ah, God, I got so many questions for you. There's, there's a lot of value in this type of conversation. Have you had to deal with some investors that are fundamentally? opposed to investing in oil and gas and then had them come around to realize, like you said, there's still a hundred million barrels a day of demand. This is not going away. Sure, there'll be a little bit more of a balance. We don't know what that balance looks like. The world will still grow. Have you had some of those situations where you've dealt with someone who's just so opposed and then came around to thinking, wait a second, I'm using oil and gas nonstop and this is not going away? Yeah, Jeremy, that would be called a unicorn, and no, frankly, we haven't we haven't had many of those folks because people that don't like energy aren't talking to us, right? By definition, we're we're talking to folks that are trying to figure out how they can make money in oil and gas. What I will say, my opinion, is that if we look at at the universe of investors uh, five or six years ago, it's probably contracted by 25% folks who have said we're divesting, we're not going to do hydrocarbons anymore, climate issues. You know, the big thing chasing people away has been they've lost their ass, right? When you're the worst performing sector, that'll do it. You know, one year, three year, five year and 10 year uh, in the in the S&P 500, guess what? People, you know, they get hit over the head enough times they stop playing. And so I think it's very convenient to, to say you're not investing in energy because it hasn't cost you anything. Um, you, you can virtue signal around ESG uh, and you're, you're helping your performance on a relative and absolute basis. What will be much tougher and more interesting is when the oil patch gets cyclically better, are these people going to stay away or are they going to come back? I'm guessing that of the folks who are not investing in energy right now, a number of them will stay away, but 75% will come back and chase performance. So, you know, at the end of the day, investors, it's about making money and you want to do that in a, in a, in as ESG friendly way as you can. But I think we'll bring some of these people back when the performance gets better. 
absolutely agree on that. No, that's that's a great take. And and one more thing, Dan, before we let you go, I know you're on vacation with the family. Uh, you know, you said you have a, a very young. Is it a son? Uh, 18, 18 month old little, sort of little girl, almost seventeen months now. Uh, Tim and I can relate to that. We have a whole host of of little girls, um, and you know, def- definitely want to let you get back to your vacation. But one thing that I do like, you know, don't think of me as a stalker, but I am. I stalk your Twitter feed. <laughs> you t- you typically go through. You know, my thought of the day is this, and it's generally a stock related item. But on September 11th, you put out a really a really meaningful post. I think to me and to others, which was not about September 11th. It's remember what it was like on September 12th. Remember what it was like on September 19th? We were the most unified country in the world. And, and I think we missed some of that. And, and your post really hit home on that. And I just wanted to say personally, I appreciated that you brought that to the fold. Um, at that time, you know, you were, you were at, uh, I believe, TPH. What did that do to the investment community as it related to oil and gas? And that's my last question. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know that, that it meaningfully changed. So I, I would say at that point in time, it wasn't, are you an oil and gas person or are you a financial person? Or do you work in the industry? I think everybody viewed themselves as uh, Americans and, uh, probably that's the last time we all felt that way. Uh, in such a, uh, as you said, unified fashion. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, that time period, people set aside their difference and you had kind of a common cause, a common goal. And uh, it's human nature, right? That's, that's almost 20 years ago. And people tend to, you know, drift back to their old ways. And so um, not the question you ask, but I think one of the things that we all ought to be thinking about is there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on social injustice and and what's happening in in the U.S. today. Um, you know we're we're getting farther and farther apart, and that's probably not not generally good for um, any business, the investing business, the oil and gas business. And so, you know, I think we got to find a way to to be more like we were in 2002 than we are in 2020. So that's a that's a uh, high level uh, kumbaya type of statement, but it, it, you know, this is, these are, these are tough times and we got to figure out a way to get through them as opposed together, as opposed to apart. Yeah. I, I, I wish it was a little more like 2002 as well, except for graduating college and not having any jobs available <laughs> to me. But seriously, Dan, I, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast and, and first and foremost, Keep providing the education and, and effectively free data that you provide to people because your knowledge base is deep. You've lived it on the uh, financial side, on the investment side. And, uh, you know, keep technology companies in mind. But but really just wanted to say, keep it going, man. We appreciate what you're doing for our space and, and putting a good good face on the industry. Thanks a lot, guys. Really enjoyed being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, we really enjoyed having you on as well.